Tonight's forecast, a freeze is coming. I started blanking them out at one point. <laughs> Digital Gonzo, episode 85, dated Thursday the 28th of June, 2012. Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. This is the fifth of 11 Batman reviews for Digital Gonzo on the road to the Dark Knight Rises. So far we've covered the Adam West series and movie, both Burton films, the animated series and Mask of the Phantasm. Next week we're covering my favourite graphic novel which is named Hush. Then one episode covering three of the Bat's best animated movie outings, Year One, Under the Red Hood and Batman Beyond Return of the Joker. And an episode on both of the Arkham games. Then, for our epic conclusion, we cover the Dark Knight trilogy. However, this week we are at our lowest ebb, the worst of the worst. While he may have flown high in the 90s in animated form, these two films did a dreadful disservice to the image of this immortal comic book hero. Riddle me this, riddle me that. Who's afraid of the big black in an uncertain world, in a chaotic time, justice wears a mask. Cave with me, I have Paul Gibson of the Gonzo Planet community. It is significant, sir, that you were the only one whom I could blackmail into reviewing this film. We've lost Sharon, Leah, Josh, Jerome, and Neil. Neil claims illness, but I maintain that it was watching Batman and Robin that made him ill in the first place. That film has claimed another victim, and it must be stopped. We hope this week to stop it. I'm not in favour of fundamentalist burnings of any media, but this pairing pushed me close. Which is funny, because it did sound like your head was going to explode during one of the Alien podcasts. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know if this actually made, made me as furious because I've had time to get over this, but uh, let's see. After Tim Burton broke the box office with his initial outing, costing $35 million and making $411 million, and enjoyed decent success with its 1992 sequel, Batman The Law of Diminishing Returns, costing $80 million and making $266 million, the brain boxes at Warner Brothers took a look at what focus groups had complained about with that film in order to eliminate that factor and ensure success in a third film. Your average American mother found Burton's vision too dark, his worldview twisted, and the themes unsuitable for children. The fact that the average American mother cannot articulate that characterization was poor and that the film favoured spectacle over substance fell by the wayside into a ditch marked unimportant. So a flowchart was created with a binary view on Batman. Burton's depiction, initially inspired by the works of Frank Miller, but growing increasingly navel-gazingly self-interested, fell into category A. The Adam West show, which most American mothers remember enjoying when they were in their teens in the mid-60s, along with copious free love, weed and the Grateful Dead, was in column B. That was how the folks at Warner Brothers saw the situation. Batman was either dark or he was camp. Some geniuses suggested that they combine the two, forgetting, of course, that if something is extremely camp and a little dark, it's just wearing black rubber instead of a pink feather boa. It makes no difference in the long run. Val Kilmer was chosen as the hot young star that would set American mothers' pulses racing, replacing the awkward, grotesque Michael Keaton. Jim Carrey had exploded onto screens in 1994 with Ace Ventura Pet Detective and The Mask, and the executives figured his brand of shouting nonsense and gurning wildly would be lightning in a bottle, pasting his image onto the long-established character of the Riddler and erasing any actual semblance of Edward Nigma along with it, using, of course, the cackling prat from the West Show as their template. Riddle me this. What do you call a sleeping bull? Answer... A bulldozer. <laughs> Riddle me this. What, tell me, what, tell me, what's the difference between an elephant and a flea? Gee, we would sure like to know the difference between an elephant and a flea. Well, an elephant can have fleas, but a flea can't have elephants. Oh. <laughs> Did the chick say to the other chick when the hen laid an orange instead of an egg? What did the chick say to the other chick when the hen laid an orange on an egg? The chick said, look at the orange marmalade. Aw, oh, come on, Riddler. See, that's not a riddle. That's just a really shit joke. The decision to cast well-known sourpuss Tommy Lee Jones as Two-Face was a mystifying one. Billy Dee Williams had played Harvey Dent in the first Batman film and was in early drafts of Batman Returns. They also couldn't get a bead on who the character was since he did not appear in the West series, though it was rumoured that Clint Eastwood would have played him. Aiming for simplicity, they simply made him the Joker with a coin, hoping that the memory of Nicholson would aid audiences' acceptance. His psychological obsession with the binary system of justice was touched upon, but the notion of what he would do if his coin came up heads so that his victim might live went out the window, along with any semblance of the character so carefully crafted in the comic books and again on the animated series. This Two-Face would simply either kill you anyway in a less direct manner, or keep flipping the coin until it came up tails. 
In the West series, all of the antagonists cackled, congratulated themselves, and plotted aloud like pantomime villains, to the point where the Joker's laugh was drowned out by the rest, and he became simply the one-dressed-in-clown makeup. And this seemed like a safe bet for production. Let's try not to scare the kids or include any iota of reality on screen. Chris O'Donnell was picked to play the twice-delayed role of Robin, not for his acting talent, but because he looked closest to Burt Ward from the Adam West show. Danny Elfman was relieved of duty on the score, and Elliot Goldenthal, who did splendid work on Heat, Alien 3, and Interview with the Vampire, fell asleep at his piano after cramming his face with After Eight Mints, and the resultant chocolatey mess on his music notes that morning was translated into a score immediately, and it sounded like this. Finally, Nicole Kidman was extremely attractive. This is such a cynically made picture that it barely qualifies under the term film. It was more a checklist of boxes to be ticked. They ensured that kids would not be scared by the dark overtones. In fact, Lyra sat bored out of her mind for the whole thing, demanding at the 36-minute mark that I turn it off because it was, and this is a direct quote, rubbish and that we should watch the real Batman. At this, she strode to the DVD shelf and offered me season three of the animated series, God Bless Her. She refers to these, as well as the Adam West show, as the silly Batman. And from that simplistic definition of a three-year-old, we can tell precisely what has occurred to this heroic vigilante. He has had all semblance of danger and seriousness leached out of him. Character growth is non-existent, as is narrative coherence. Situations take place simply because it looks cool, or at least it does to a coke-addled exec with a crushingly low opinion of the regular cinema-going crowd. Witness the Batmobile scaling a vertical wall because that's what West used to do. Witness holy rusted metal Batman because that's what Robin used to say. Witness bizarre lycra-clad gibbering millionaire imbecile Jim Carrey shrieking prototype memes like Joygasm! Bankman! It's impressive. Surf's up, big kahuna. Snooze. That's okay, Jim. We are. This was before he went respectable with well-reined-in performances on The Truman Show and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, but after he'd worn out that particular act by the end of The Mask. In retrospect, he seems manic and irritating, crazy beyond reason, yet somehow still holding down a steady job at Wayne Tech's nebulous science division. All of this is the way it is because of laziness, complacency, fear, and lack of imagination. Believe it or not, Schumacher actually loved Batman Year One and wanted to direct that story. It was decided that he should instead perform the equivalent of bringing Happy Days to the 1990s at a cost of $100 million. The film made $336 million, 70 more than Returns, minus 20 for the extra budget, and still 75 less than the original at more than three times the cost. The notion, therefore, that Dark did not sell tickets was ridiculous and utterly false in the face of the Nicholson outing. These two films did not need to be made at all, and the only saving grace is that by the time Batman and Robin turtled out of the Hollywood sphincter in 1997, everyone was so sick of Batman that he went away for eight years, while Warner Brothers invested all their efforts into swinging the pendulum back in the other direction, not just towards gritty affair, but to something infinitely more intelligent. Post-homicidal depression.
simply love what you've done with this place. Heavy metal meets house and garden. <laughs> It's so you, and yet so you. What's the point, big boy? Has anybody ever told you you have a serious impulse control problem? This is your brain on the box. This is my brain on the box. Does anybody else feel like a fried egg? You know, it's always risky introducing a tamed animal into the wild. Somebody tell the fat lady she's on in five. around the world feeding me credit card numbers bank codes sexual fantasies and little white lies into my head they'll go victory is inevitable for if knowledge is power then a god Was that over the top? I can never tell. <laughs> By the way, I've seen your mind. Oh, shut up, Jim. I had a soft spot for it when I was younger, but I was obviously stupid. Because <laughs> um, I was watching it again the other night. It's In my notes here, I've just written two words. Annoying mess. Yeah. Which is pretty much it. And neon everything. Mm. Yeah, we've got massive overacting from the villains underacting from everybody else and yep. Gotham is a dayglow playground instead of dark and gothic it's the least gothic Gotham I've ever seen possibly until Batman and Robin yeah <laughs> I don't know. it's difficult to, to separate the two in my head I mean uh, we're going to talk about Batman Robin very shortly it would appear things that I noticed uh, Nicole Kidman comes on, on like a crazy slut when Batman's on screen the, the scene when she turns on the, the bat signal and gets him to come down the roof, and she's just like, oh, oh, and she's rubbing herself up against him. And like, she like whips off her dress and goes, have you noticed these? Yeah, they're lovely. Um, I can already hear Paul Shotton saying, why are you complaining about this fact? <laughs> I don't know, Paul. It just, she freaks me out a little bit. She's actually not so bad as just Chase Meridian when Bruce is on screen. Because she's just sort of talking to him like that. And the only kind of good bit of the film is where he's talking about the flashback to when he was a kid and at his parents' funeral. Uh, interestingly enough, that whole sequence was supposed to be a lot longer. He remembers that his father had left his journal out and he went through it. And in the original script, uh, it turned out his father had... The last passage his father had written was, I want to stay in tonight, but Bruce wants to go to the movies. So I guess Martha and I have to take him. And because Bruce read this as a small boy shortly before plummeting into the Batcave, he blamed himself for his parents' death. Now, this is something that um, Nolan used later on in Batman Begins, and it's actually something that's prevailed throughout the Batman comics later on, um, that Bruce blames himself 
for their deaths. But in the Nolan Batman, it's because he was afraid during the Deflator Mouse, the, the opera, he gets them to leave early. If they'd left at the same time as everyone else, they wouldn't have died. So Bruce has his own fear to blame, and so it becomes twinned with the bats. So it's a lot more straightforward. You can't blame a kid for wanting to go see the movies. It's a ridiculous thing to blame yourself for. But it's also the sort of thing that people do blame themselves for. So uh. Yeah, that, that would have at least been interesting. <laughs> Which just, but yeah. they removed that, just to make sure. I can't really think of anything else interesting in it. John Favreau's little cameo. Yeah, John Favreau is on screen for about six seconds. He's uh, walking along beside the Riddler when uh, they're at Nigma Tech. Uh, he's just on the right-hand side. Uh, Ed Bagley Jr., the guy that uh, Edward Nigma throws out the window, has actually taken this off his resume. It's, he's, he's uncredited. He didn't even want his name attached to this piece of crap. Yeah, the only, the only note I've got for that bit was least convincing fake suicide note ever. It was. Once again, it... it the Gotham police are, are beyond inept in this film. They're, they're sickeningly useless. And of course the, the city needs Batman, because no one else is doing their job. It's pathetic. They were poor in the first two, but... Mm. Yeah, downward trend, apparently. There, there appears to be no detectives on the uh, police force. Uh, Gaw- Jim Gordon himself looks at the suicide note and goes, Yep, definitely suicide. It's like, yep, yeah, well, I guess case closed. Back to the donut shop. I'm just trying to look what else I wrote down. We've got pre-pies Val Kilmer. <laughs> he couldn't squeeze into the bat suit these days. And why does no one hear Wayne shouting, I'm Batman? Yeah, I mean, he's standing right next to... A very, I mean, people like Chase Meridian was standing right next to him. Tommy Lee Jones doesn't seem to get who Two-Face is. I mean, no one seems to get who Two-Face is, but he just cackles so insanely all the time. And it's, Watch... Jones in the background when Jim Carrey is flailing himself about on screen hogging the camera it's like just in the back of his head you can see it whirring away like come on come on I'm hungry I want to go home and I mean yeah, he, he's been a fantastic actor in, uh, in comedy in Men in Black in drama in uh, No Country for Old Men it, it's just that here he's utterly rubbish I'm guessing utterly bored and only there for the paycheck yeah, and possibly to elevate his position somewhat. Mm. Mm. I'm just trying to think if there was anything positive from it. <laughs> from this film? Yeah. Mm. I suppose it may have made Nicole Kidman much more popular as a result, so she got better roles. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, nope. nope. Really can't <laughs> think of it. Seriously, it's just... It's, it's, Jim Carrey it, just being Jim Carrey and yeah, it, prancing around, it's like... 10%. He makes What's me not Gershin. Want... Gershin? Is, was it Gershin? Or Gershin? You played Gershin. him in the 60s one. I don't care. No, him. <laughs> either way. Um, it was like 10% him and then just, yeah, mask but with red hair instead of a green face. And not as entertaining. This is from Catatonic Gnarly on the Guilty Pleasures section of the forum. My favourite Batman movie is Batman Forever. I'm so sorry. Uh, and I simply responded, The fuck? 
And his response was, I know, I know, I guess it's a nostalgia thing, because I saw it repeatedly as a pre-teen, and at the time I had not seen the earlier ones. I was never a big comic book or superhero fan, I knew very little about Batman, and I never questioned its validity. As a young and uninformed person, it has quite a lot to offer. Obviously now I know it's garbage, but that doesn't stop me having a soft spot for it. Again, though, a soft spot and my favourite Batman movie are two completely different things, Nali. But I, I, I will freely admit, without a hint of guilt, that I not only saw this film in 1995, but I thought it was great. And I went around that summer with a Riddler t-shirt on. That's Jim Carrey on my chest going, ah, doing that thing he does. And, uh, you know, because back in the day, I, I loved Jim Carrey. I thought he was hilarious. It was so, so funny. Um, and I did the same well not the t-shirt bit but I saw it at the cinema and loved it yeah and I I think basically just when you're a teenage kid and you just maybe just a teenage kid in the 90s because these days teenage kids would sit and go this is crap like I said my my three year old kid saw it and thought it was crap (laughs) she's got better taste than me but she's seen better films than I had at that age already and she's just been watching The Legend of Aang for, for weeks now, and she mm. loves really fantastic storytelling. And so when some crappy storytelling comes along, she can smell it. So, I don't know, I'm, I'm really quite proud of her already. Yeah, I don't know what my excuse was, because I'd probably seen Aliens by this point and things like that. So. I've seen Aliens, Predator. I, 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 was, I liked the first two Batman films, but I didn't love them. I didn't really love this one either, but I think by the time, only two years later when Batman and Robin had come along, um, I had already, I think significantly, I met Paul and Tony in those interim years, and I really got into film as a result of being friends with them. So, thank you, Paul. Thank you, Tony. You have Im- <laughs> you improved my uh, points of view on films no end. Uh, but, but, yeah, this... Uh, it's garbage. It's got a neon Batmobile. Neon everything. Yeah, neon. Oh. <laughs> Gotham's neon lit. There's gang members are painted in neon paint. Yeah. Or UV paint or whatever it is. It's... There, okay, there's one good thing about it. I really quite like Kiss from a Rose by Seal. That's about it. I really don't like Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me. For, for one thing, who's that about? What, whose perspective is that from? Is that about Chase? Is that about the Riddler? Is it just not connected to anyone in any particular way? What, what is that song about? Well, let's play a bit of that now.
just ah, oh, we need a song. What have you two got? Yeah, Bono, The Edge. Well, we're working on we're we're working on this right now. It's called Hold Me. <laughs> What's it called, Edge? I don't know. Interestingly enough, uh, The Edge went on and did their theme tune to uh, The Batman, which I actually really like. Let's play that now. pretty much exactly what happened whilst we were watching it. We were talking about other stuff. <laughs> Anything else. Also, the, the biggest thing that hits you about this film, more than, more than the next one, although the next one suffers from it as well, it's just boring. You know, it's, just, it's not that fuck all happens, it's just that nothing happens of any importance. Okay, so I'll tell you what, let's have uh, Kiss from a Rose, and then we'll play the trailer for Batman and Robin, and then we'll just launch straight into that one, shall we? Sounds good. Sure. For a given value of good... <laughs> there used to be a gray and tower alone on the sea. Learn it well, 
was the chilling sound of your doom. This is the way the world could end. Please, show some mercy. With ice. With a kiss. With venom. I probably should have mentioned this. I'm poison. Poison ivy. And the only man who can stop them. Hi, Freeze. I'm Batman. Can't do it alone. Batman will watch his beloved Gotham perish. Bundle up, boys. There's a storm coming. Kill the heroes! The hockey team from hell! Cool party! Schwarzenegger. All right, everyone, chill. George Clooney. I'm not the marrying kind. I know you've had your wild night. Good night. Wild doesn't doesn't quite cover it. Notice how both of these trailers use the music from the first Batman films by Danny Elfman, not the shitty Elliot Goldenthal music. So it's like, you wanted a steak dinner? Well, we're offering you hamburger, when in actual fact, it's a turd in a box. And you are? Batgirl. That's not awfully PC. What about Batperson? Found the Batcave. She knows who we are. Guess we'll just have to kill her. In a Joel Schumacher film. Strength and courage. Partners. Honor. Partners. And loyalty. Freedom and justice. Partners. It all comes together. All up on Batgirl's face. Batman and Robin. Most of the groundwork for this cinematic atrocity was actually laid in the last film, Batman Forever. Since it didn't bomb, the studio were convinced that the combination of apathetic shallowness, camp attempts at humour, ineffective policing, carnival aesthetics and terrible performances was a winning combination. So it set out to make the same thing again. In the end, they made something even worse. Arnold Schwarzenegger, a man who initially broke into acting because he had huge pectoral muscles, had 24 million dollars thrown at him to play Mr. Freeze. Let's look at that figure, because that's the gross national product of some small countries. Twenty-four million dollars! One million for his suit. That's a lot of cigars. I mean, that funded his campaign trail, if nothing else. Right. Mr. Freeze, a character redefined by Paul Dini and the other writers of the animated series to be a cold-hearted machine of a man, furious at a world that had robbed him of his wife. He was a character to be played by Patrick Stewart, or Bruce Greenwood, a steady man, adept at holding his emotions inside with dignity. Instead, Schwarzenegger spent his entire screen time smirking and delivering feeble puns that he had been fed by screenwriter Akiva Goldsman, now freed of Lee and Janet Scott Batchelor, his co-writers on Batman Forever, who must have been the only two people holding him back from this torrent of drivel. Longtime producer Goldsman is the man behind the screenplays of Lost in Space, Practical Magic, iRobot, A Beautiful Mind, and The Da Vinci Code, to name but a few. It is not known who he convinced he could write, but clearly when it turned out he couldn't, nobody wanted to rock the boat. 
And let us not forget, of course, that Schwarzenegger forged a political career based on appearances in films where he would kill henchmen and make a joke about it. But people have this idea that it's, that it's still the, the promised land. You know, somewhere like California, which everything is fruitful and, and, and abundant. But Arnold Schwarzenegger is, is the governor of California. There's a perfectly ordinary English sentence. Do you know how that happened? Because I'll tell you. You know how he got into that position? He got there by lifting things. <laughs> now you and me, we avoid lifting things. It's unpleasant. Especially heavy things. Even a five-year-old child knows this. They go, huh? No. <laughs> Fuck it. No. I'm going to put Lego up my ass. I'm not doing that. No, no, no. <laughs> he took a different approach. He lifted the heavy... And you know, you lift something when you have to. Piano falls on Granny. You lift the piano. Because Granny has mixed feelings about the whole situation. <laughs> Sunday lunch continues. <laughs> he didn't do any of that. He went right over to the heavy thing and lifted it. I put it back down and didn't move it anywhere. And then he lifted it again, hundreds of times, and said to the people who had stopped to observe this aberrant behavior, look how good I am at lifting the heavy thing in my underpants. Now that sounds a little dim. But it was they who said, you're the man. You're the one we want to deal with immigration and water rates and taxes and all that kind of shit. <laughs> now, wait. What we need to know is, how bad was his predecessor at that job? You know, this must have been somebody who came to work covered in children's blood every morning. George Clooney, being the beau de jour, thanks to his stint on ER, donned the bat suit and turned up giving a mediocre, frustrating performance, half smirking that this was his big break, yet barely passed for a film, and half grimacing at how repellent every element of production was, from the flimsy sets to the turgid humour. The irony is that with the right script and director, Clooney would have made a fantastic Bruce Wayne, and maybe even an excellent Batman. Look at his hard-nosed performances in Syriana and Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, but also his more emotional roles, Up in the Air and Out of Sight. The man is a talented actor capable of so much more than this, something that can be said of many members of the cast. Something that could be said of one or two members of the cast. <laughs> yeah, I've got... Most of these people can act relatively well. Why aren't they? Yeah. I... Significantly, George Clooney has spent ye the years since this claiming that he is the man who killed Batman, taking full responsibility for that film, as, as though if he'd been better, the film would have been great. He knows that that's a lie, he knows that's being remarkably self-effacing, but you know, ultimately what's the point of saying, look, it was a turd, but, but fuck it, I, I needed a career. I suppose it worked, he got one. You know, the business can be that way, there's a, there's yeah. a certain cutthroat... The element to the business. Certain compromises, certain things you have to do, but... Sure, but I, but I would also sort of argue, with the exception of, and I'm sure you guys have all met a few uh, actors that you'd like to take their heads off, but most of them are pretty, uh, pretty kind to one another, because mm -hmm. it's such a, 
you're so lucky if you get to the position where you get to be in a film and get to, you're very privileged and you understand that it's not just your brilliance that got you there, that you're standing on the shoulders of a lot of happy accidents along the way. And so you recognize that in one another, usually. Um, and so I think that there's a, there's a certain generosity I find with most actors that I don't see necessarily in, in certainly not in politics. Can you when, imagine if we had, like, ads on TV campaigning against other actors for roles and stuff? Like, <laughs> over-actor, you know? Yeah. Like, like Did you see him in that film? <laughs> It'd just be shots of me in a rubber suit and a Batman outfit. <laughs> For your consideration, ass. <laughs> Matt Damon taking it out, you know. <laughs> Chris O'Donnell's Robin is, if possible, even more annoying. Bitching that he doesn't have top billing or equal ground with the man he previously refused to stop following like some circus-themed stalker. He's so ridiculously whiny and self-entitled that it's amazing Bruce doesn't simply move to Bloodhaven to get away from him and leave the vapid streets of Gotham in Robin's incapable hands. I think, I think, the worst part of this film, from the Robin perspective, it's either when they surf through the air, that's pretty awful, yeah. or the bit where he kisses Ivy and Ivy goes, time to die, little bird, and he says, and he peels off these rubber lips and says, I hate to disappoint you, but rubber lips are immune to your charms. And it's like, I was just watching it, and I thought, my lips are sealed? Just off the top of my head, that makes, that, that is at least pithy. But no, rubber lips are immune to your charms. Yeah. <laughs> I just, and I mean, The that's... whole cowabunga thing. Oh, cowabunga. Fuck it off. Oh, oh God. <laughs> Not good. Remember, when I saw this, I had suddenly a new appreciation for film, and I was watching things like LA Confidential that same year in the cinema. And it's, this is it's like the as I said earlier in one of the first shows. Um, Joel Schumacher would sit in a uh, chair, shouting through a megaphone at everyone. Remember, folks, this is a cartoon. Which, according to John Glover, who's the crazy scientist, who um, I mean, is the crazy scientist, he goes, "Now you have to die." Blah! Um, according to John Glover, that made it hard to act. So. I actually like John Glover in it, in this for doing what he obviously knew was the right thing and just hamming it up. Uh. <laughs> yeah, that's what he does. <laughs> uh, and the, the character he was playing is a DC Universe character, believe it he or was? not. He oh. was? From Swamp Thing and all that sort of thing. Uh, Dr. Woodrow. Woodrow, yeah. How did real characters filter into the script? It it almost seems like they shouldn't be there. Yeah, there's one that definitely shouldn't be there, but I'm sure we'll get to him. Here is a fun little collection of Mr. Freeze's puns. Tonight's forecast, a freeze is coming. Allow me to break the ice. You are not sending me to the cooler. Freeze well. What killed the dinosaurs? Yes, Stay cool, bird boy. Let's kick some ice. Show some mercy. I'm afraid that my condition has left me cold to your pleas of mercy. No! All right, everyone. Chill. It's a cold town. Cool party. <laughs> 
Can you be called Batman? Yeah, to perfection. Revenge is a dish best of cold. Winter has come at last. Freeze. Freeze. Ice. Freeze. Ice. Winter fiber. Frozen. Ice. Freeze. Winter ice. Ice. Freeze. Winter. Winter. Freeze. Cold. Frosty. God. <laughs> I'm not laughing that they're funny. I'm laughing that someone greenlit this thing. Yeah. You, you know something's up from the very start of the film. The Bat and the Bird were joined by Alicia Silverstone's Barbara Gordon, rechristened Barbara Wilson, and retconned into Alfred's niece simply because Jim Gordon had been a footnote in the film so far. This led to the only awkwardly effective scene in the film, in which Bruce talks to a dying Alfred. Uh, did you like that bit? Was that alright? It's, it's one of the better bits of the film. <laughs> That's not saying much. No, but at least they acknowledged it, because Michael Goff really not looking well in this. Yeah, no, he died shortly afterwards, and frankly, had I been in this film, I would have too. Mm. It's a stepping stone in a lake of shit, but at least it's there. Silverstone was criticised for her body shape and cruelly dubbed Fat Girl. I would instead have attacked her wardrobe department for her absurd costume, the head of continuity, if he existed, for not remembering that Barbara has red hair, and the head of technological depiction in film for trying to get the audience to believe that computers in 1997 could do that. <laughs> Silverstone was party, like the boys in both films, to multiple leering shots of her rubber-clad cleavage and buttocks. The often-spoken-of anatomically correct bat nipples also got plenty of camera time, and the bat-hungry Schumacher ensured that he got plenty of low-angle shots of Batman and Robin's codpiece-adorned penises. It's more than enough to put you off your spit-roasted bat dinner. In fact, for several shots, he's more or less positioned the camera lens inside Clooney's anus. <laughs> no adding to that. <laughs> Unfortunately, this one is not a visual podcast, or I would show you constant clanging shots of Clooney's buttocks and penis. Uma Thurman is absolutely abominable, turning in the same career low as the rest of the cast. She's all sneering and floral puns, deeply stoned eyes, and the dress sense of a deranged Gautier catwalk model. That she also managed to star in the 60s TV Avengers adaptation slash abortion in less than a year was nothing short of career suicide, and it took Kill Bill to convince me that she could be an excellent actress when you swept away all the bad choices. She swerves wildly in this from acting, in quotes, like an over-enthusiastic drama student, mm. to reading off a piece of paper. And then there's no in-between, it's one of those two things. Okay, right, we're doing improv. I'm a overly short-sighted and pushy environmentalist. Go! Uh, or she's just all smirking and, and, uh, and making jokes about plants. Not particularly good ones. None of them are good. Nothing is good. What's to say about this film? Events swing out of control without a whisper of narrative cohesion. What was probably considered zany in production ends up tiresome and unremittingly unfunny. As internet wise man Paul Shotton has said, nobody was ever unintentionally thrilled by a bad comedy. And that's exactly what this is. There's no action because nobody commits to the premise that a man in a cape could fight crime. The filmmakers themselves think the idea is so ludicrous that what emerges on screen is a lurid, liberace nightmare of bad ideas and inconsequence. The film even features this summer's chief antagonist, Bane, a lumbering, not-quite-monosyllabic homunculus who does nothing but fight for Poison Ivy because it was suggested that Thurman couldn't do her own action. 
Bane in this film possesses precisely 1% of the menace of the man who once broke the bat. This was surmised in a scientific test accurate to a thousandth of a mega menace. The CGI-created ship monkey named Blarp from Akiva Goldman's next defence, Lost in Space, was found to be ten times scarier. One of the worst aspects of the film is that they actually try to work in the Paul Dini background to freeze from the Emmy Award-winning episode of the animated series Heart of Ice, his comatose wife, and the tragic figure that cuts of him. Unfortunately, every ounce of emotion that might have been mined from that scenario is soured by a series of cinematic atrocities that give the finger to the audience. The message is loud and clear. We hate comic books. They're dumb. Fuck you. Here's your hero. Doesn't he look a pillock? By the action figures. As far as Bane's concerned, that is not Bane. Bane should at least have some intelligence and some menace to him, rather than just running through walls at command uh. and repeating the odd word. You know, he was intelligent enough to find and break Batman. Yeah, he's supposed to be funny, <laughs> for God's sake. Yeah. The cherry on the cake following the rather rocky The End is the Beginning is the End by Smashing Pumpkins, which later on was used in a slower version to promote what film? I have no idea. Watchmen. Oh, of course, yeah. Is R. Kelly's ridiculously misplaced Gotham <laughs> City song. Now, most people won't have heard this because they turn off before the credits get halfway through, but I'm going to play part of it now. Listen carefully to the lyrics and ask yourself one question. Did anyone on this production know the first fucking thing about Batman? I'm looking over the skyline of the city How quiet nights in the midst of Next door to happiness lives sorrow And signals of solution in the sky A city of justice A city of love A city of peace For every one of us We all need it Can't live without it A Gotham City Oh, yeah. I'll sleep in awake because of fear. Oh, yeah. How children are drowning in their tears. How we need a place where we can go. A land where everyone will have a hero. I know a place that offers shelter problem at the base of these two productions. In fact, these four productions. Dark is neither bad nor good. Camp is neither bad nor good. And as we've seen, the two are not opposites, and neither in excess appeals to a wide audience. This binary thinking allowed the studio to wreck the franchise. Ultimately, if history has taught us nothing else, it's that Batman is only as good as his writing. We can pin this all on Schumacher, but without a solid script and altered direction, the ludicrousness of a man dressed as a bat swallows the production whole, and it becomes a mess. 
Now, by auteur direction, I mean a strong director with a clear vision of what he wants from the film, not studio meddling. There's no question it is even worse than Batman Forever. Yeah. Uh, These are are films that actually might... They could quite happily be stricken from a record and just forgotten about. If uh, you remember, Superman Returns actually cancels out the... uh, uh, three and four. Three and four. It, it, it knocks them off of continuity and is technically is an alternative Superman three. However, ultimately all of that continuity goes out the window the second the Nolan films come on. It's, it's a, a different depiction, but because of the same actors, Pat Hingle playing Gordon and uh, Michael Goff playing Alfred, running throughout all four films, it is effectively supposed to be the same Batman. With yeah. different <laughs> viewpoints on the same Gotham. And I mean, they also, you know, they refer, like, the Chase Meridian in the second one refers back to, you know, do I need skin-tight vinyl and a whip? She's talking about Catwoman. Uh, Catwoman talks about Vicky Vale. I mean, in, in this one, they reference Superman and... Oh, this is why Superman works alone. Yeah, well done. Well, I think at that point, they were actually planning... Uh, Batman, Superman, Batman, Superman, Superman yeah, one. Yeah. Superman doesn't work alone, not always. There's plenty of people who work with Superman. In fact, Superman Superman's is so much more... Jimmy Olsen. <laughs> yeah, Superman is so much more interesting when he's got someone else to bounce off because, frankly, on his own, Superman's boring. Both Superman and Batman come alive when you put them together on screen or in a comic because they're so posed in viewpoints. But on his own, Superman's boring. And on his own, Batman can sure as hell be boring as well if he's got the wrong kind of production team behind him. And this certainly did. Yeah. Even more neon than the first one. Not the first one, than forever even. The fact that we're doing 12 of these shows, to me, suggests that there's enough Batman out there that you can actually skip the shit ones, frankly. Yeah. I, I think that people should actually be discouraged from watching these films. I don't think anyone's actually out there trying to watch them anyway. I think no, most adults would rather forget them, and kids only need to watch them for a few minutes to go, this is dumb, turn it off. Yeah, and if you weren't convinced at the start, comedy whistle noises during fights... Oh. <laughs> yeah, Bane fighting two guys and you just get the comedy whistle noises as he throws them out the window <laughs> Now, we have no one here to uh, defend the Adam West series but I will at least say the Adam West, at least I like Adam West and at least there is a certain charm to that series I, I, I still think that it did dreadful harm to, to Batman in general I also think that over the 20th century we had too much Batman last yeah. 10 years yeah the 90s in they particular could, they could frankly have just done one maybe two Batman films and that would have been fine and enough um, but in fact talking about Bane there was a very very good Batman ab- adaptation in the 90s oh yeah um, the BBC radio adaptation of Nightfall oh of Nightfall yeah Okay. Which I remember being brilliant, but admittedly I've not listened to it for a long time. But that was being done properly. Let me tell you a few things about Gotham City. It has a population of 7.5 million. It boasts the tallest example of neo-Gothic architecture in North America, which you're suspended from, by the way. It has the largest percentage of sociopathic criminals in any metropolitan conurbation, so you're strictly small fry. And it's got me. No, please! I can't take the height! You must be from out of town, or you'd know better than to mug tourists at the Founders' Day Parade. No, mister! You can watch it from here till the police arrive. Hope the wire holds good. That was an old batarang. Oh, you know, we could be reviewing the Spider-Man films instead of this. 
Spider-Man's out in a few weeks. In I fact, what even Spider-Man said. 3. Yeah. I would have Spider-Man 3 is that. significantly better than this film. And that is a mess. One thing I did notice in this that I did like, kind of, yeah. was the... Not the one at the end, because they changed suits halfway through for no apparent reason. Yes. But Robin's costume in the first half. The Nightwing costume. The Nightwing costume. Just with a cape. No capes. Yeah. The cape, not a good idea, but... <laughs> it was Yeah, it was the Nightwing costume, but red. <laughs> a nice nod to it, I suppose. Yeah. The only other note I've got we've not talked about was really crappy wire work. Yeah. Every time somebody jumped, you could see they were kind of pulled on a wire and just left hanging there that second too long. So that's it. I mean, that's that's Batman and Robin, just one of the one of the worst films of all time. I think if I can't even rip into it, like you know, oh, it could have been so good, but you did this wrong. Everything's wrong with this film. There's not a single thing that's right with this film. There's not really a single thing that's right with Batman Forever, apart from the fact that Nicole Kidman is hot. And frankly, if it had just been two hours of Nicole Kidman modelling underwear... Okay, it's getting a bit hot under the colour just thinking about that. Um, That would have been a far, far better film. And that's frankly what she did for half her role. Yeah, that's... Yeah, the body. She, um... For about... 30 seconds. Yeah, interesting enough, for a model, she still comports herself better than many paid literal actors. The, the only other note I've got written down here is, mm-hmm. why is Mr. Freeze smoking a cigar? Surely that's a bad idea. Why is there a really crappy cover version of Poison Ivy playing at the charity auction? Why does Poison <laughs> Ivy dress as a giant gorilla? Why do they have ice skates built into the... Yeah, I mean, they'd have to walk suit. around with those ice skates on their boots all the time. Just on the off chance they have to do some ice skating. Why does Batman allow Two-Face to die at the end of Batman Forever? He throws all those coins up in the air, and knowing that Two-Face will go, no, and fall down. Any other, any Batman fan will tell you, straight off, he would just grapple his ankle and leave him hanging and go, there, right, to Arkham with you. But he wouldn't just go, ha-ha, fuck you, Two-Face, now die. Why is Robin's bike stored in a neon-lit coffin? Why does it take ages to get Robin's bike out to send it off after the Batmobile? Surely Batman would just have to hang around with the Batmobile waiting for Robin to catch up with him. Yeah, and the Batmobile in this, I just wrote, none more neon. They may as well build the car out of neon. How does the Riddler, who lives in a crappy apartment, fund the release of an extremely expensive electronic household item? Why does no one, no one twigs what Edward Nigma's up to? How does he build a giant island with an enormous brain-sucking device on it? Everything about his operation stinks. How does his computer show the human thought process as 2D video? That's not how the brain works. It would be like trying to process Half-Life 2 into cave paintings. Everything about that stupid fucking headpiece thing and the 3D TV. The feds would be on his case in moments. For no other reason than the murder of his boss. And how did he completely fool the Wayne Tech security system? How did he create that video? Why did no detective ask any more questions? It's a murder. Wouldn't it be clear that someone had tampered with the recordings? How does he get that close to Wayne Manor without being caught on camera? Why were there no armed police units to take them down during the jewellery heist? Why were there no police investigations as to where Two-Face or Riddler might be hiding? What does Jim Gordon have his police do on a day-to-day basis? Rescue cats out of trees? Why was anyone fooled by the domino mask? What did they buy with the money they'd gained from the stolen diamonds? 
a minefield? Who's their fence? If this is supposed to be a film for children, why was there nearly a rape scene in it? A gang rape scene. Actually, you could say the same thing about Spider-Man. Why were there obvious prostitutes? How did Two-Face fill a bank vault with boiling acid? Why did the acid have to be boiling? How is a wall weak enough to be penetrated by Batman's grapnel gun, yet strong enough to support the weight of a falling bank vault? Why does Riddler get a melty head at the end of the film? Why is Riddler fine again when he's in Arkham? When Poison Ivy gets eaten by an Audrey 2 looking plant, why does Batman say, we'll deal with her later? No, deal with her now. Take her to Arkham. How is Mr. Freeze's suit powered by diamonds? He doesn't just use them in lasers, he fuels his suit with diamonds. That makes no sense on any level. Diamonds contain no energy. Why does everyone that freeze freezes when he freezes a section of Gotham not die? How come the guards in Arkham Asylum are so inept? Why has nobody shot Mr. Freeze in his face? It's totally exposed. Why did they put Poison Ivy in with Mr. Freeze? A man who has every reason to murder her. When her beaten, bloodied corpse turns up in the morning, whose fault was that? What's a bat credit card? How many times does Poison Ivy need to use that blowing dust in your face technique? In one scene, Two-Face crashes a party and then exits through the front door, locking it behind him. Batman then climbs up to the next floor. The next scene, he's like 50 stories up, so he has huffed his way all the way to the roof to then jump down and go straight through a tube that they carefully place beneath him. If he's skillful enough to jump that far, is he not skillful enough to avoid the chute they place in front of him? There's no such weapon as that rocket launcher Two-Face uses. Batman can't run through fire. Why does Alfred know his niece's exact measurements for making her a Batgirl costume? That's creepy. In a file photo of Poison Ivy, she's standing in an airport with Bane covering her face. If you're wandering around with a luchador, you're going to stand out. It doesn't matter what you do with your face. How did Dr. Chase Meridian become a doctor when she has the intelligence of a 13-year-old girl? During the trick-or-treat scenario, how come the only defences for Wayne Manor are Alfred? But I think worst of all is that Batman has multiple opportunities to take down Riddler, Two-Face, Poison Ivy and Mr. Freeze, and he never takes them. It's like what the filmmakers envision an eight-year-old's view on the world is, but most eight-year-olds are smarter than these films. Yeah, uh, I've spent the last two days playing Lego Batman 2. Mm. More character in Lego models of these characters. Yeah, I believe it. I, I move that these films be stricken from the record. Never to be mentioned again. Well, not never to be mentioned, but just to be mentioned in that kind of, oh, they did do that, and then forgotten like a dream. A bad one. Feel free to blame Schumacher, but this was definitely the studios uh, meddling in there as well. Maybe a stronger director would have stood up and said, actually, no, I, I would really like to make this a bit serious. You're making this into a camp farce. But I suspect they would have said, okay, Joel, you know, well, don't let the door hit your ass on the way out. I guess the feel, the mood was the bunch of grown-ups is it's Halloween and we get to do whatever we want because it's a magical world. It's one of those strange, once-in-a-lifetime experiences. I thought that Batman Forever clearly captured that 1940s, early 50s era of Batman comics. Bill Finger used to write these great stories about um, Batman fighting villains, jumping from the keys of a giant typewriter that was in display in some World's Fair or wherever, and giant pencil sharpeners. And Batman and Robin were fighting together for the first time. 
the Riddler made his first appearance in the comics around that time. So everything began to change, and I think that Batman Forever did capture that era of the comic book successfully. Well, I'd never known Batman without Robin. I mean, there was, I mean, I grew up on Batman, and there always was Batman and Robin, so it just seemed natural. And we went way back to the early comic books. The circus story and his parents dying that way, that's all from a comic book. It was very hard not to laugh when Jim was working. Because he'll try anything, you know. It just, I wish we'd done the outtakes. And, I, and it's funny because I think sometimes it kind of rubs some people the wrong way, as if he was maybe stealing the show or something. But, I mean, the guy's a genius at what he does. We had some bad press. They, I don't know why they did this, but they said that Jim and I weren't getting along or that I didn't like him or something. I don't know how you can not like him. To be an alien, not to like Jim Carrey. No, no, no. Ordinarily, I look for certain subtleties. The comic book doesn't concern itself. So it, it was liberating, of course, to be a, a comic book villain. When kids would come on the set, it was unbelievable. I mean, they would literally be speechless. I would sort of try in the first couple of weeks when I was in the bat suit to entertain the kids and goof around with the cape and. And the kids go into a trance in front of the bat suit. It's amazing to watch because, it's, particularly with the boys, they just get completely entranced by this costume. You sure they weren't just bored, Val? At all. So after a while, I would just stand there like a like I was in the wax museum. Bob Kane, the man who created Batman. Bye. I wouldn't have this job if it wasn't for him. Thanks, Bob. Long ago, when this whole thing started, Batman Year One. The Frank Miller comic was always my favorite. Wait a minute. Well, I'd never known Batman without Robin. You bloody liar. And I was always hoping that I would do that one. There was no desire to do that the first time around, and there was definitely no desire to do that the second time around. Batman Forever and Batman and Robin often now get squidged together, but Batman Forever is a is darker than Batman and Robin. It is a retelling of the origin story in a way that attempts to take a little bit closer look at the psychology of young Bruce Wayne and how he became older Bruce Wayne. There's a piece of the movie that isn't in the final cut, but which is strangely the narrative component that the story was built around. All the way throughout the movie, there are these images, there are these recurring images of this book, this mysterious book. Um, and in the movie, when the book is revealed to be Bruce's father's diary, it simply says, He'd written in it every day of my life, but now he'd never write in it again. At that moment, I knew my life would never be the same. In the screenplay and in the movie that we shot, there is a, a very different center of the movie where he opens up the book and the last entry is Martha and I want to stay home tonight but Bruce insists on going to see a movie and so the idea was that somewhere Bruce remembered and had repressed his fantasy that this was all his fault that if he just hadn't made them go see a movie that night they would never have been out and they would never have been killed and so the whole movie was actually built around this kind of psychological reckoning, which is why the love interest is a psychologist and why, in fact, there was a whole section of the movie, which was actually in the uh, commercials uh, and the previews, where Bruce then returns to the cave 
that he fell in running away when he was holding that book and uh, sees that giant bat. Val sort of spread his arms and the bat spread his arms, a very sort of gothic component of the movie, quite dark. It was a much more complex, really kind of fun, but much darker version of the movie. There are very few films that, that uh, are, reach that many people. Uh, I don't think any, none, none that I can think of, that, that don't have a really compelling story, something fundamentally attractive about the story. And we all want to know who we are, and we all have uh, nightmares that might could turn into something that's healing or we have nightmares that are reoccurring like Bruce Wayne, the need to get healed. Val, are you and, actually uh, high right now? It's just, it's really well, well made story. Everybody was generally very happy to have a new style of the franchise. We <laughs> delivered what we agreed to deliver. So did somebody actually ask for a turd sandwich? The success of a movie doesn't really happen to you. You just sort of get, someone tells you about it or you are aware of it. Your whole experience with the film is really finished when you hand it in. It's like raising someone else's child. No, it's like beating someone else's child, Joel. There's a difference. You have to give it back after a while. The truth is, it's your movie while you're making it, but it really belongs to the movie studio, and ultimately it belongs to the public. You can have it, Joel! We don't want it! It's a great experience. It just felt on Batman and Robin that Jack was out of the box. It just felt like the sky was the limit. We were on a high, there's no question about it. You have a film that's very successful. In Batman and Robin, there was a real desire at the studio to keep it more family-friendly, more kid-friendly. And, a word I had never heard before, more toyetic which means that what you create makes toys that can sell. We involved the toy company. We let them look and be involved in how the Batmobile was going to look, how uh, Batman's gadgets were going to be, which they wanted. This is key to them. They need a lot of lead time. We started planning in August of 95. I knew Are it. you hearing this? And Poison Ivy as the villains and so we started with tear sheets comic books and discussions of what they would look like and how we were going to make gotham city bigger better and what areas we were going to be going into so all of those things that you're designing they're ripping them out of your hands because they're going to make the molds the molds for them usually have to be made in asia so you have to give them the designs far in advance so they can get these molds made to make the toys made so the toys will be out when the movie's coming out. So everything that we did was, can you make it bigger, can you make it better? And I'm not criticizing anyone. I signed on to do this. I was doing this job, but that was part of, that was a major part of the job. I think we want to be served up something with a lot of psychological complexity and darkness when we do these uh, movies. I mean, I, I think that there's a certain component of the fan base who will literally think I am the personification of the other but in fact the truth is what I believe these movies need are as much darkness and complexity as they can have this is Akiva Goldsman speaking the writer sometimes you get some going sometimes you know Joel knew where he wanted to go with the picture and Joel likes it very bubbly he doesn't like it too serious let's not take ourselves too seriously here we're making a Batman movie we're making a comic book a live comic book Batman, Robin, 
before a take, Joe would pick up his megaphone, his bullhorn, and go, remember everybody, it's a cartoon. So I, that kind of set the tone and the, the style of Joel's Batman. The whole approach was much more glossy and um, theatrical. It was all a, a totally different look to uh, Tim's film, which was all dark and shadows. But I could also understand, as you progress through one, two, three, four films, that maybe you have to change the look, otherwise the audience think, yeah. I've seen this, you know, so... There's no way I can explain it to you other than I had no idea that putting nipples on the bat costume were going to be international headlines. The bodies for the suits are, the inspiration for them are Greek statues that have perfect bodies. And so we're molding this perfect body in rubber and they're anatomically erotic. And so it never occurred to me not to put nipples on the men's suits because I didn't know that, that the male nipple was a controversial body part. Then I was left with the dilemma of what to do with Batgirl. <laughs> because if we didn't give her nipples, then we would have seemed sexist, I think, to have left her out. So hers are a little subtler. You know, it wasn't so much the nipples for me as it was the codpiece. You know, the press, obviously, kind of, uh, you know, with Joel directing, of course, they kind of played that up a little bit, but uh, I didn't I didn't think twice about it. Although now I kind of look back in some of the pictures, and I'm like, that is a little unusual, I suppose. <laughs> Val Kilmer and Chris O'Donnell's codpieces were exactly the same size. Chris's is shorter, so it looked bigger. The joke was, on the set, that Chris had tipped Jose, the great sculptor, to make his bigger. The movies, to me, have always reflected a different era from the Batman mythology. To me, Tim Burton's first film was truly the Batman of 1939 before Robin came in. Batman Returns was more of Tim's tribute to the Batman comics, the way they were portraying the character in the 1990s. Batman Forever, pure middle, to, middle of the 1940s to the middle of the 1950s. And Batman and Robin clearly was all about the Batman of the 60s in the comic books. So I think that a fan's perspective or an audience's perspective on these movies is different depending on what age group they are in and what type of Batman comics they grew up reading. Bollocks. By that argument, anybody born in 1980, much like myself, would like Batman Returns the best and your ideal cinema goer for the first Burton outing would be a 75-year-old man. The merchandising and licensing became a very, very important part of the making of the film. But I also have to say, I was an adult, I was awake, and I went along with it. Where did they touch you, Joe? So I'm not pointing a finger at anyone else and saying, they made me do this, all right? I was there. If there's anybody watching this that, let's say, loved Batman Forever and went into Batman and Robin with great anticipation, if I, if I disappointed them in any way, then I really want to apologize, because it wasn't my intention. My intention was just to entertain them. You know, I felt very much, and still do, that we were doing exactly what you're supposed to do. I leave the opinion of quality to, to the individual viewer, but what you're supposed to do with icons is contort them. I mean, the reason that 
comic books survive over time is that the characters are durable and they are afforded different realizations. They're different lenses through which to see the world. They change and are changed by the world, by the time, by the historical moment that they're in. And without those aborted and perhaps less successful bends and twists, you never get Dark Knight Returns. You will never, ever find a Clint Eastwood version of Batman. And those are the things we want. And that's what we yearn for. We yearn for um, something old made new spectacularly. Uh, and so, you know, that's the job. The job is standing on its head and see if it stands up or falls down. So you're basically saying, without you making the shit Batman, Christopher Nolan would never make the good Batman. How does Paul Dini and Bruce Tim do it without your help? I remember... Years ago, Jerry Weintraub introduced me to Colonel Tom Parker, who, you know, discovered and managed Elvis. Mm-hmm. Discovered and exploited Elvis, yeah. And he told me that Elvis was such an icon that ever after Elvis died, he could just send the suit around the United States and make a fortune on the suit. Batman is like Elvis. He can take a raping. It's really the suit that is the store, which is not to take away from Michael Keaton or Adam West or George Clooney or Val Kilmer but it's Batman who's the star and Batman's going to go on long after us I, I'm not worried about Batman <laughs> bloody hell Joel I would be oh another thing Edward Nigma, the character in the comics the actual character he wants to be the smartest guy in Gotham he wants to be the smartest guy in the world he wants to know what other people don't he delights in putting out riddles that are actually really quite difficult to solve that drive specifically to drive Batman up the wall because he knows that Batman is extremely smart and he likes to lord it over him when he knows something that Batman doesn't. This Edward Nigma wants to take other people's information out of their heads and put it in his own. That's the opposite. That's cheating. That's being a regular guy smart enough to, to work out how to steal other people's brains. That's not saying anything about his brain, specifically, apart from on the technological side, which doesn't affect Edward. The thing that Nigma wants most of all is to know the thing that no one else knows. The second he finds out Bruce Wayne is Batman, he tells Two-Face. Immediately. That doesn't make any sense. There is no narrative cohesion there with the character in the comic books. No, even in the comic books, he was happy enough to cheat, but, yeah, he wouldn't give that out once he knew it. I don't even know why we're trying to actually uh, attribute seriousness of forethought into this specific character it was it was simply a vehicle for jim carrey to go mental yeah <laughs> so just to do what he did similarly two-face doesn't just keep flipping his goddamn coin he, he doesn't do that he can't he's it's pathological he has to either kill you or, or let fate decide that you should live and leave you doesn't mean if you don't cross his path he won't do it again but he's not going to keep flipping it over and over again which he does when he's at wayne manor yeah, even in some versions of the character, it's been right, kill you, or help you. Hmm. You know, uh, depending how it goes. Edward Nigma breaks into the Batcave by pressing a button. What does this button do? Doesn't matter. Just press a button, break Magic into Batcave. <laughs> Magic button. And the annoying flying bat bomb things. <laughs> yep. This is just repulsive scene. See, Batman and Robin's so bad, we've gone back to Batman forever. I just, well, I had all these bits that I'd forgotten. Dick 
breaks into the Batcave with relatively... I mean, he actually spends more time asking about... He could actually just have jumped clean across there and, and gotten through with no, no issue at all. Barbara gets into the Batcave with no issue. Basically, anyone who gets into Wayne Manor can get into the Batcave. But then again, as we've already found out from Batman Returns, he's got fucking bats on his roof. Big bat symbols that will reflect the bat symbol through his windows. Yeah, that must be aimed at his house for it to happen. In the, uh, the, the effort to make sure they didn't alienate kids, they alienated everybody, except the dumbest of dumb kids, of which I was one, sadly. I don't think I saw this one at the cinema. Yeah. Oh, and it didn't alienate men who were horny and wanted to see scantily clad Nicole Kidman. Although you could probably just have got away with watching the MTV video for whatever. Yeah. The U2, U2 song at that point. <laughs> oh, and the other thing is, Chase is fucking stupid. When she, she, she goes out bad psychology, but then when she actually, um, when, when Bruce is te- regressing into his back cave, and she's, <laughs> first off she listens to his story and he says that I would use the image of the bat to strike fear into the hearts of criminals. And then she's like, oh Bruce, and then she kisses him, and then she finds out he's Batman. Because his lips are exactly the same as Batman when she kissed him. Not that she uses her psychology to deduce that he's Batman. Not that the second he looks at a Rorschach test that looks exactly like a bat, I might add, not a Rorschach test, and says, ooh, it's a bat, you have a thing for bats, and that didn't immediately sow the seed in her brain. No, it's kissing him that makes her realise that. And remember, kids, she just regressed him to the mind of an eight-year-old boy. So she's effectively tonguing an eight-year-old at that point. Least professional psychologist aside from Jennifer Lopez in the cell. <laughs> that movie is fucking rubbish. Never seen that one either. Interesting link. The uh, the guy who uh, wrote the cell was going to write the next Batman film, Batman Triumphant, and is currently writing the Mass Effect film. Oh god. Uh, During the filming of Batman and Robin, Warner Brothers was impressed with the dailies, prompting them to immediately hire Joel Schumacher to return as a director for a sequel, as in the fifth Batman film. However, writer Akiva Goldsman, I say writer, who worked on Batman Forever and Batman and Robin with Schumacher, turned down the chance to write the script. Again, I think he just ran out of crayon. In late 1996, Warner Brothers and Schumacher hired Mark Protosevich to... Protosevich to write the script for a fifth Batman film, a projected mid-1999 release date was announced, titled Batman Triumphant. Which is another way of saying, there's no danger in this film, Batman's going to be fine. (laughs) Protesevich's script had the Scarecrow as the main villain. Do you remember who the Scarecrow was going to be? No, no idea. Howard Stern. Through the use of his fear toxin, he resurrects the Joker as a hallucination in Batman's mind. What the fuck?! Harley Quinn appeared as a supporting character written in as the Joker's daughter. George Clooney and Chris O'Donnell were set to reprise the roles of Batman and Robin. After Batman and Robin did poorly at the box office, George Clooney vowed never to wear the cape and cowl again. Yes! Thank you, George. Yeah, because that's why he didn't, because it did poorly at the box office. (laughs) Following the failure of Batman and Robin, however, Warner Brothers was unsure of their plans for Batman Triumphant. The studio decided it was best to consider a live-action Batman Beyond film and an adaptation of Frank Miller's Year One. Warner would then produce whatever idea suited them most. Schumacher felt he owed the Batman culture a real Batman movie. I would go back to the basics and make a dark portrayal of the Dark Knight. That's how he talks, by the way. He approached Warner Brothers about doing Batman Year One in mid-1998. 
Like I said, he wanted to do that in the first place. But they were more interested in hiring Darren Aronofsky. Aronofsky and Frank Miller developed a year one script with Aronofsky to direct what was ultimately cancelled. Christopher Nolan was eventually hired to helm the next Batman film in January 2003, resulting in the rebooted Batman Begins, thank Christ. Aronofsky doing a superhero film would be interesting. It would. A ton more interesting than these four, frankly. If nothing else, because he can actually direct. <laughs> well, yeah, he, he is, he's got a strong vision. I, I think the rest is actually really good. I don't like most of his films, but... I'm just trying to think what I've but got. But at least he's a, he's a director. Oh, but then Joel Schumacher, he directed Falling Down and uh, The Lost Boys. Those are some great films. Tigerland. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the only other Aronofsky film I've got is The Phantom, which is a bit of a mess, but at least it looks interesting. <laughs> In Legends of the Dark Knight, an episode of the new Batman Adventures, three teenagers discuss their ideas about what Batman is really like. They briefly meet an effeminate youth called Joel in front of a shoemaker's shop, whose idea of Batman consists mainly of a fascination with the tight rubber suits and a Batmobile that can drive up walls. The teens treat Joel's ideas with utter disdain. In Watchmen, like <laughs> director Zack Snyder and comic book artist Dave Gibbons chose to parody the moulded muscle and nippled batsuit design from Batman and Robin, uh, for the Ozymandias costume. Ah, that explains it. The film is referenced in Batman the Brave and Bold episode, Legends of the Dark Might, where Batmite briefly uses his powers to transform Batman's costume into the same suit shown in the Joel Schumacher Batman films before declaring it too icky. The Batman from Batman and Robin later appeared as part of an army of Batman gathered across from the multiverse in Night of the Batman, complete with the rubber blue Batsuit. Artist Phil Noto revealed on his Twitter feed that he had drawn an unused cover for the Batgirl number one, which referenced the film. The cover showed Stephanie Brown looking over photos of potential Batgirl costumes and writing notes for each of them. A photo of the list of Silverstone Batgirl design from Batman and Robin is shown, crossed out with the words, definitely not, schooled over it. Aye. <laughs> uh, just looked at the credits for Mark Protosevich. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's not all bad. <laughs> What's he done? The Cell, he wrote, I, the, the, uh, which is not a good thing. <laughs> it's awful film. Poseidon, Poseidon. vaguely diverting. I Am Legend was all right. Yeah. It really should have been an R-rated film, though. And then the next one's the interesting one. Thor. He did <laughs> apparently did the story for it. Right. And going up the list, he's apparently doing a draft of Jurassic Park 4. Jurassic Park 4. Hmm. So <laughs> we're, we're currently at his mercy since he is currently working on Mass Effect. God, if I, I could don't think, think that will ever happen. <sighs> Whatever. Okay, <laughs> let's finish this piece of shit. Okay. In summation, Batman and Robin, one of the worst films of all time. Do not watch. Yeah, simply put, do not watch. Next week, we'll be covering Batman Hush, written by Jeff Loeb and with art by Jim Lee. It is one of my favourite Batman graphic novels of all time. It's got a very similar flavour to... It's like a grittier version of the animated series, and it's also very similar to the Arkham games. So if you like them, then it's along the same lines. It's a really twisted, interesting whodunit, involving most of Batman's rogues gallery and allies. It's also a really good way of reacquainting yourself with the characters. It was kind of a reboot for the comic. And so it's, it's great if you're just starting on Batman, because it kind of tells you who he is and who everyone else is to him. It's £14.29 on Amazon, 
and I believe you can also buy it in two separate volumes, although that doesn't appear to be the cheaper option, so uh, well worth a look, utterly recommended. So we'll be talking about that next week, and uh, a few days later we'll be talking about three Batman animated films, Batman Beyond Return of the Joker, Under the Red Hood, and Year One, all of which are definitely worth tracking down and seeing. And then after that, we start on the Nolan trilogy. So basically, it's uphill from here. This yeah. was our lowest point, and, and it's, it's all sunshine from now on. We're only looking at quality. It couldn't get much lower. Yeah, no, yeah. So thank you very much for coming on the show, Paul. It's, uh, it, it's no, been, thank you. I won't lie, it's been painful. Yes, watching I've, these was. <laughs> I've spent the past week thinking, what the fuck am I going to say about these films? But... I think we did them injustice. So, and what music should we finish on? Um, oh, I know. Uh, the end is the beginning is the end. Yes. Yes, which actually worked really well as a uh, a great kind of song. Remember the uh, the slow version of this was used in the trailer for Watchmen. So yeah, one of the only good things that came out of this awful, awful pair of films. See you next week. Yeah.